Hello and welcome to the We Are Rail Fans podcast. The series for rail fans, by rail fans, exploring all areas of the rail hobby from around the globe. I'm Sam, and if you're new to this podcast, welcome aboard. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, they're available for free, wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not give us a follow, so you'll receive a new episode as soon as it's recorded. Thanks for all the comments about the podcast, like this one from Bub's Pictures on Instagram, who says he was out rail fanning and taking pictures at Stevenage Station, England, and after getting a great shot of LNER DVT 82213, he told us that he really enjoyed listening to our podcast on the way back home. I definitely recommend, he says. Thanks, Bub's Pictures, and thank you for taking the time to listen. And if you want to get in touch with us, then why not visit us at wearerailfans.com or find us on Facebook at We Are Railfans. There you'll find all the latest news, views and interviews from the train world, so do check it out. You're listening to the We Are Railfans podcast, and my guest today is a well-known TV and radio personality in the world of engineering, design, architecture, and, thankfully for this podcast, railways. You may know him from Ian Hislop's Channel 5 show, Trains That Change the World, or perhaps you'll recognise him from the programme Small Railway Journeys. Maybe you're familiar with his writing in The Independent and The Guardian newspaper, However, many more of you, I'm sure, will be aware of his work from the fabulous books, including The Train, An Illustrated History, Giants of Steam, and his new release, Logomotive. It's Jonathan Glancy. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Sam. So, we're here to talk about trains, obviously. Uh, what, what are your earliest memories? Is there something in particular that sticks out? I think they must be purely subliminal, Sam. And I think the first, one of the first things I can remember is seeing a steam locomotive in London when I must have been a few days old and uh, right in the last days of steam. And I think, as for lots of row enthusiasts, that initial encounter of the steam locomotive refuses to go away all those years later. What's what's the impression of it that, that kind of sticks with you then? I mean, because it, it, oh. a, a steam locomotive, I mean, they're big, they're hot, they're smoky, mm-hmm. there's, there's all kinds of business going on. Is there any one part of it that is kind of a, an emotional resonance point i guess it's not just the sight is it sam it's the sound and it's that living breathing machine that somehow is like an animal and it's wonderfully comforting and exciting at the same time and when it moves it breathes and it talks it expresses itself and i think right from little children get it even today you watch at a preserve railway and little children will put their phone down for a five seconds perhaps to watch a steam locomotive the rest of us were just entranced how can you not be i completely agree i well you've come to the right place for that kind of enthusiasm so so what was it came first i mean when once you started to uh to kind of develop a passion uh was it a love of engineering or is it design or trains what where did you kind of initially direct your your attention yeah it's interesting sam because the railways really helped me to put lots of things together as a child. I had this huge enthusiasm for a little boy for architecture, and I've written about architecture for many years in newspapers and books. Um, And I love engineering of all sorts. 
and I love the sight and sound of steam locomotives. And in the great railway stations, which I visited as a child in London, there it all was. Magnificent engineering in the train sheds, magnificent architecture surrounding the train sheds and facing the streets, and magnificent machines living and breathing. Actually, by the time I grew up, they're growling and pumping out diesel fumes by then. But, um, but anyway, it all goes together. You get this complete aesthetic engineering package. Isn't it wonderful? I'm a big fan of the, the London terminuses. Is there, is there one in particular that stands out for you? Well, I think in fairy tale terms, as a child, St Pancras, of course. I mean, the Midland Grand Hotel facing um, Barlow's train shed at St Pancras is just breathtaking. You know, it's the stuff of gourmand tales, and uh, it's pure, pure fairy tale. A, a dragon turned into architecture. You know, the other Victorians are very good at doing with their great Gothic designs, and that is exciting. The other ones I can just remember: Euston in the state of transition, and. Interestingly, thought as a little boy that the new station was dreadful. And the reason was you went into this new airline terminal style station and there was nowhere to sit and there were no trains. So I remember that was a very important moment for me in terms of everything, railways, architecture, the lot. Because who on earth would divorce the trains from the station? Why couldn't you see the trains inside the concourse? Because the whole point of the other ones I loved, whether it's Waterloo, King's Cross, St Pancras, Marylebone, Paddington, the trains came right towards you. It's lovely watching them come in and just stop a few feet away from your face. It's lovely watching them leave and to hear them and see them. So that's, you know, as childhood was very important to those London stations, coming to terms with an interest in those things, yeah, architecture, engineering, and trains. So was there one train in particular or one locomotive in particular that you particularly fancied? Well, it certainly was, and um, it wasn't one I would have known except, again, just slightly subconsciously at the time because I was so young. But um, in a picture book I had, and then in an Ian Allen um, Loco Spotter's Guide to London Midland Region Locomotives, there was this really lovely colour picture of... Uh, the Stania, Princess Coronation Pacific, city of Stoke-on-Trent, in its glorious late red livery with yellow lining and its British Railways emblem. And it was had been polished up, actually, outside crew works for an exhibition, which I didn't realise at the time. And that photograph stuck with me. And uh, although, of course, I could never have met city of Stoke-on-Trent because it was scrapped in 1964, um, I did later on get to know and travel on, and even drive a Princess Coronation. You got to drive a Princess Coronation? What was that like? I did. I did um, one, um, slightly uh, uh, secretly, and the other, certainly not secretly. The not secretly one was uh, the Great Central Railway, the Preserve Railway, had a driver's course. And 1994, I went on that course. And that day was great. It was just me and one other person. So we had, each of us had the Coronation to ourselves with the crew. and. I'd already driven steam locomotives, so I couldn't wait. And uh, the great thing was that the Duchess, which I'd dreamt of, not only was it as magnificent as I hoped, but it was attached to a 12-coach train. It was done, which is rare for that railway, but it was there to give it some weight and to Mm. allow you to feel it moving away and trying to get it away. And the even better thing, it had started to rain, so the rails were slippery. And it was really exciting. The driver was great, and it was there, obviously, you know, to guide and help and make sure nothing went wrong. But um, yes. I think he was quite excited because I did remember, you know, to pull the throttle open to push it straight back. 
you know, before that huge volume of steam moved down that great boiler to those Amazing. great four cylinders. And you know, because I knew this by then, I knew it's, it will slip, it will slip. So push the throttle back, open it up again gently, and it, and of course it slipped. <laughs> and it slipped anyway. But, you know, but, but a dream come true. Fantastic. And the other time was absolutely fantastic. There was a chap at the National Railway Museum called Ray Tull who um, uh, looked after the steam locomotives that ran from the museum. And uh, Duchess of Hamilton at the time was out on the main line. Um, I was writing for the independent newspaper then and asked if I could travel with the train, uh, the Duchess, from Leeds to Carlisle across that beautiful Settle and Carlisle railway line. Anyway, he phoned back and said, good, you know, he's a good sort of doer Yorkshireman who turned out to be absolutely lovely and fun. And he said, um, yeah, you can come as long as you come the night before. And he said, you've got to oil the locomotive and prepare it in the morning at York. This is, is this is a penance, you know? Is this a problem? I mean, I was up there, you know, like a, like a cheetah on, and, um, the, the next morning at four in the morning, you know, I was under that locomotive with a lamp with a driver and fireman oiling. And that taught me a hell of a lot about steam locomotives. And I love them even more. But what was so surprising was this, you'll know this, Sam, but, and your listeners will, but what I couldn't understand was to oil the motion, we had to lift corks out no? and pour oil right. in and put a cork back. And I said to the driver, you know, it's, it was misty and dark and cold um, at that time in the morning and slippery. And I said, why would anyone do this? You said because labour was cheap, <laughs> and I suppose he's yeah. absolutely right. And labour was cheap, you know. Of course, later on, you could have installed a mechanical system to distribute the oil yeah. without any of those, you know, any of that effort. But you did think, God, it's so strange. And up above me was this huge boiler and giant, you know, firebox, you know, generating a lot of heat. There's a lot of oil and a lot of dampness. So there's a very sort of there's a danger to the steam locomotive in that way, and this, but it's exciting. I loved it, every bit of that. Could you uh, could you have seen yourself doing that on a daily basis? You know, if it, yes, would you have uh, gone uh, gone the distance and gone? No, that's it. This is a career for me now. I'll, I'm going to be a professional oiler. A professional oiler started off as an, literally an oily rag cleaning the locomotives, <laughs> and then a fireman. Yeah, um, yeah fireman's pretty exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> I've 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 done that. I've, I've not had the chance, but uh, but it certainly looks like you, there's no respite going on in there. There's no respite. I had a few swings of the shovel over the Settle and Carlisle of coal into Duchess for Hamilton, and uh, the first time, wonderful. You know, I swung it in. The coal goes straight in. Brilliant, it's easy. Second one, I threw the coal all over the footplate, you know, and uh, you know, hit the. And it's actually very hard. The, the Duchesses mm-hmm. ride very smoothly, like a like a carriage, but they're still swaying slightly like a carriage at a sixty miles an hour and above, and um, it is very hard to do. And when I saw inside the firebox of a Duchess, I was staggered by the scale. I knew the dimensions in my head. I'd read them as. In books, a little child. I knew a right. 50 square foot. Great, you know. But 50 square foot is 10 foot by 5 foot. I mean, you know, it's like a little room, isn't it? Like a, bed, like a kid's yeah. bedroom. And That's you've got not to co- insignificant. And you've got to cover that in an even layer of coal. Well, I didn't last very long and handed the shovel back to the fireman. But the lovely thing is the driver, um, when we were climbing the great long gradient on the Settle and Carlisle, you've got something like 20 miles of 1 in 100 grade. And mm-hmm. the driver let me sit down in his seat 
And I wasn't really driving it, so that would be an exaggeration. Um, but I was sitting in that driver's seat, and he did let me change the gear. <laughs> no, the cutoff. <laughs> a little Fantastic. bit. We had to get a little bit more cutoff, you know, open the throttle a little bit further to keep it going. I could say I drove the Duchess that day. Not really. I sat in the driver's seat. But, um, oh, I'll claim it. I'd, 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 I'd take that one. No, it, no, no. Put that, put that one on your CV. But it was, but it was absolutely wonderful experience because what I, what I liked was up on that locomotive. People asked me afterwards, um, "What's it like?" You know, fellow journalists, not mm. certainly not cynical or, or even not even skeptical. They said, "You know, this is your thing, Jonathan. You love this, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah." So, what's it like? And I said, "When that big locomotive was climbing up those Settlan Carlisle hills." I said it was like being inside a mobile thunderstorm. You know, it's wow. it, yeah. it, it's the that's what I love. It's the elemental nature of the machine. There's a fire blazing down below you. The safety valves were constantly hissing, and at one point they lifted on the grade because it's a very free steaming locomotive. The boiler pressure you could see the gauge stuck on two fifty pounds a square inch, and the big safety valves, four of them above you constantly about to lift and when they lift they roar on those like on a duchess so you hear this roar you hear the you can hear the engine pounding you can hear the the, the wheels gliding along and the whole thing is a magnificent um uh, yeah, a sensation but i said like traveling in a weather system right no, no what a fantastic way to describe it so you referenced a little earlier on that you had a uh, a pretty thorough spotter's guide there now w- <laughs> were you in that for the pictures or did you actually go out spotting um i was never and i hate to say this because it always sounds a bit pompous i was never a, a, a loco spotter a train spotter i never took numbers what i liked i suppose is that aesthetic instinct um which made me want to write about architecture and design and um, in the way I do and engineering. It's I like the way things looked and sounded. For me, standing on the edge of a platform was taking all that in. And with the books, though, what was great, you know, the Ian Allen books are superb because they very succinctly told you what you were looking at. You know, they just told mm. you this was a King Class 460, you know, built in 1927, 1930, and the weight and the who designed, you know, all that stuff. It's very useful. So you, you imbibe that stuff like you imbibe nursery rhymes. I mean, I can still, embarrassingly in a way, rattle off, but I can, probably your listeners can too, rattle off whole pages of that stuff, attractive effort, you know, weight, cylinder dimensions. But, you know, you can say, is that an interesting thing to do? I think it is, because it does teach you a hell of a lot about relative scale of machines. Yes. I found it actually fascinating. You know, when were these machines built? Where did they come from? Where were they built? Who designed them? And as you get older, it becomes more interesting, not less interesting. You know, when it says, you know, designed by William Stanier or um, Sir Nigel Gresley, these days, of course, you can take that apart in your head because the story's yeah. much richer, isn't it? You say, well, William Stanley was the chief mechanical engineer of the London Midland Scottish Railway, but he wasn't a designer as such. He was a brilliant, brilliant um, organiser and a brilliant chief mechanical engineer, a fantastic boss. But his designers were other people underneath him who were fantastic. And, you know, that I liked to, to learn more and more about their stories. But the Ian Allen books started me off. And years later, by the way, when I was um, writing, I was asked to write for The Observer, a Sunday magazine when I was on The Guardian. And um, the editor there said, he said, would you do one of these um, regular pieces for us, really? It's a life told very briefly in 20 questions, I think. And he said, who would you like to do? And you could pick anyone, you know, film stars, politicians, 
you know, it's a big newspaper. And I said, sure. Ian, Ian Allen, he was coming up to his 80th birthday. And the great thing is he got it. He said, Ian Allen, what, the train spotter man? I said, yeah. And I went to see Ian and we went round his great Cockrow Railway, his miniature railway uh, oh, fabulous. in Isha. You know, it's brilliant. And uh, he was so, so funny. And he was nothing like I imagined. He was witty, right. funny, stylish, and had me in fits of laughter. No? Amazing stuff. So on the subject of writing, you've, you've written about trains, obviously, uh, but also cars, planes, buildings. Uh, do you have a, a, a favourite, or, or is it just a case of whatever it is grabs your attention in the moment when you're putting pen to paper, as it were? I think it's um, what I was trying to explain about, you know, it may come from childhood. I said that seeing everything going together, I mean, the experience of going to those great railway stations and seeing everything working together and the architecture was never less than fascinating. The engineering was absolutely riveting. That's probably the right word, isn't it, for engineering? Very good. And, the, and the trains, this movement, this great big you know, train set, a real train set working in front of your eyes. And uh, some years ago, um, in fact, it was when I left the Guardian newspaper to go on to be a freelance writer and author, I held a party for my colleagues in the Midland Grand, which I would do. And um, very nicely, the owners, because they knew how enthusiastic I was, they gave me for free one of the best rooms in the old hotel. And that hotel room is brilliant. The curtains opened up across, looked through a huge Victorian Gothic window inside the train shed where the Eurostars were coming in and out. But, you know, for me, that was just sublime. As part of this podcast, we ask our guests about journeys that they've been on or favourite railway journeys that you've been on. Is there one in particular that, that really stands out for you? Yeah. Because you've, you've travelled all over the place by rail. So, so you know, is there a, a real high point for you? Yeah, and no, I have travelled around the world and certainly by trainer in every possible difficult corner which I've enjoyed um, but you know one stands out I remember it was that a sadly closed line in South Africa in the garden route from George to Neisner it's a 60 mile line that wound along the southern coast of the garden route of South Africa so you've got the ocean constantly lapping around the railway and the railway climbed and twisted and turned through hills across viaducts now with the mountains now with the sea now with the landscape where you'd see lots of wild animals fantastic and you would be in a, a, a 1930s 1940s coach and at the front was a lovely uh, South African railways 482 a class 19d 482 which were like pack horses, you know, those locomotives, they could, they were wonderful. They could climb any gradient without slipping because they're small wheels. And I remember the sight and the sound again, everything went together. This time it wasn't architecture, it was landscape. And as the train went over this viaduct with the ocean below us, there a pod of dolphins were playing through the ocean. It's just all too much. And at the front, this lovely North British Glaswegian locomotive, 6,000 miles from its birthplace, very securely taking me up around through these hills. And the other thing that's great too is that I went to talk to the crew at the end and they let me ride in the footplate back. He, but they didn't talk English except in a few grunts. 
and what they took, they took, they were, they were Afrikaans. And I hadn't expected that. I thought Afrikaners would all speak, you know, speak English. And I, right. And so that, all these things are so brilliant that railways teach you. But the thing is, of course, they were steam men. And steam men all speak the same language all the way around the world. And so, you know, of course, you know, all the gauges are and everything is. And, and they could explain, you know, they, showing me where the particular different gradients were, which I was interested in, and then also particular views and things to look out for. And then they said, you know, thump you on the shoulder because they'd say lions, lions, you know, that's said to say that in English. And that's quite something, isn't it? No? That's extraordinary. I, I, I hope, Sam, that line will reopen. South Africa's a pretty sorry place for railways at the moment, and I hope they sort themselves out and get their railways back. It seems to me that, that uh, railways around the world, they're, they're in flux constantly. It's, it's, you know, either through underinvestment in one place to seemingly overinvestment somewhere yeah. else. Is there, is there a country in the world that you think is, is particularly excelling when it comes to kind of railway development at the moment? Well, in a certain way, of course, China, which I mean, the you know the Chinese Empire is on the march, isn't it? Everywhere, and mm. um, um, a part of that is the sheer energy that they have at the moment. It may not last forever, but as uh, the Chinese are moving ahead fast, they built so many miles of high-speed electric railway. It's extremely impressive. Um, that one of the things they did uh, when I was working at the Independent newspaper, which I thought was a bit of an April Fool's joke at first, was I read that they'd opened a 600-kilometre line in Inner Mongolia and that it was all steam. And that was in the 1990s. And you think, well, that can't be true. And of course, it was true. And the reason the Chinese built that line using steam originally was they wanted to create this huge, great mineral line, yeah, tapping into the mines and so on. But they knew that they had all these surplus steam locomotives and they simply ran to steam until they dieselized it. And eventually they'll electrify it, of course. That's inventive. They're pretty, I think they're pretty together. Yeah. And what I like with the fact was they didn't, this is the 1990s, Sam, mm. they didn't say steam locomotives are dirty or fashion things like they did in Britain. We must get rid of them. They just think these are, this is the motive power that we will use at the moment. Huh? Because it's, yeah. it will work. It's simple, reliable. There are lots of them. The crews know how to use them. This is going through a part of um, Inner Mongolia, you know, very northern China, in very, very difficult conditions physically, you know, in both in the terrain and the climate, from desert to high mountains, you know, from blazing sun to snow, uh, heavy snow. And it just all worked. Um, semaphore signals, incredible, 1990s, because they were simple and worked. And not now. It's all been, you know, modernized. Just in those 30 years, it's changed. But I think yeah, watch the Chinese. They're just good at it. Yeah, well, I think they're, they're also somewhat aided by the, the lack of private ownership as well. Oh, uh, I saw a comparative article between uh, trying to modernize American railways versus uh, China's kind of expansion. And uh, China don't have to go through any eminent domain or compulsory purchase or anything like that. They just go, we're coming through here and there's not a lot you can do about it. We're coming through and I, I think... I think many of your listeners will agree, British listeners certainly, maybe Americans too, that actually one thing that does need to be in state control, properly run, imaginatively and intelligently, are the railways. Even Mrs. Thatcher, remember Mrs. Thatcher, who was a keen privatizer, but she said privatization of the railways was a privatization too far. 
she wouldn't have nationalised them. John Major and Tony Blair did that. And that's a great shame because it then split them all up and you don't get what you're describing that according to the Chinese, you know, directive drive. Railways are a system. They're not, you know, commercial playthings in the same way as department stores are. Quite so. Well, on the, on the subject of, of countries not our own, uh, <laughs> your new book, Logomotive, looks at American railways. So for anybody who's, who's not quite come across it yet, give us the pitch. How would you describe it? Well, it's a book about the way that American railroads look. And what um, Ian Logan, the designer, and I we did this book together, what we both thrilled to in America is both the, the epic scale of American railroads, which reflecting the epic scale of its landscape and also its, its epic history. Um, but what we did love was the fact that, because it's such a big place, over the last 50 years, hundred years, there have been so many railroads, and of course all privately owned, and uh, until Amtrak came in much later on, but these each with its own look and its own emblems and logos and badges and liveries. And they were just captivating the sheer variety. You might think there were a lot in, you know, pre grouping Britain in the 1890s, 1900s, but the States, because it's so big and their railroads Many more railroads than um, I had imagined before I started doing that book, because there are lots of the little ones I hadn't known about, all these little local railways that ran just a mm. few miles in the States. Mostly, of course, you know, I was brought up, uh, like most of us, to know all the big ones, Union Pacific, Santa Fe, New York Central. I mean, certainly knew about those, but it, it's the sheer variety of experience that's we wanted. And so for people interested in design, we could see that there was this glorious kaleidoscope of imageries. And that kaleidoscope of imagery, Sam, tells you the story of the American railroads. It tells you the story of the American landscape and all the different communities and parts and states of that giant country. And so that's our way of telling the story of the United States through the way the railways and its trains looked. So is there a, a favourite logo or, or a story from the book that you would you would like to share with us? Oh, gee, there's just so many. But I just, for me, it's just the, uh, there's, I always had this dream. In fact, I do have a, actually a dream of being able to go to New York Central Station. But it's not now. It's a great station now. Fantastic. Yeah. But I'd like to go in 1940 or 19, probably 1940 when Britain's fighting a war. And imagine if you could sneak off on a holiday to the States for a few weeks, if you could, if such thing were possible. And you'd arrive in New York, no ration books, you know, have all the food you wanted, all the drink you wanted, people in smart clothes, and get on the 20th Century Limited train from New York to Chicago. The 1938 version of that train was the most beautiful Art Deco streamliner and from the locomotive right through the trains to the ashtrays, to the cutlery, to the napery. Everything was all of a piece. And what a piece it was. It looked like the future. And the great thing is that the future is a steam locomotive on the front, which is exciting for me, uh, looking like something out of a, you know, a, 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 like a Batman movie, really. You're, and, you're talking uh, my language. I know it very well. Buck Rogers, Batman. It's that feeling. And, and to be on that super train but not a flashy train that's what i liked about it look at the people look at the photographs of the 20th century limited the 1938 version of the train it's super subtle you know it's modernism art deco done at a very refined 
highly intelligent level. And that, to me, is what, in a way, modern trains should be. And when I get on my trains today in England, um, I'm always a bit disappointed, the modern ones. They're so bland and anodyne, uniform lighting, hard seats, cheap fabrics. Steady. Sorry. You'll you'll have them (laughs) up in arms. There are a surprising number of people that are uh, are particularly fans of, you know, the the, the modern EMUs. um, I'm sure. Which obviously are our function far more than they are form there's there's no rule to what it is that that appeals about a particular a particular train or a particular era of trains i mean would you say that the the 40s as you've you've just described rather splendidly and steam in particular is that your your favorite period or is it the diesels that you saw no, growing up no that period it's it's the late i love that last flowering of the steam age on the railways, you know, when the locomotives were pretty efficient, very fast, very powerful, very um, functionally beautiful. And I like all that very much. And I like the fact that the trains were immensely stylish. There would be people, not not row enthusiasts, there would be people um, outside row enthusiast circles who will say, oh, weren't they a bit sooty and dirty? And I did learn a lesson about that, by the way, um, in Poland, um, on the and the Volstein Railway, you know, the Volstein uh, to Poznan uh, Railway, which is a great place to drive steam engines. But sitting in one of the double-deck carriages the first time I went, um, on the 4.16 in the morning in January from from Volstein to Poznan, this is, the, this is a commuter train, 4.16 in the morning, you know, Shows you how hard people work in a place like that. But I couldn't help opening the windows so I could hear the locomotive up front. And oh, straight away, this woman, in no uncertain terms, let me know what she thought in Polish. You know, and I don't blame her. She didn't want a load of you know cold air and soot flying in. No. But I did. But you know, of course, that's it wasn't my train, and so I just uh, quickly accepted the situation. Of course, and apologised. <laughs> Your your experiences on the rail and and surrounding rail it sounds like a rail fan's bucket list. Uh, is there is there anything missing uh, that you personally would like to experience, or you know, given the opportunity, would travel back in time to uh, to go and experience firsthand? To travel back in time, yeah. Well, I mentioned one, the twentieth century limited train. Yeah. I'd love to have gone on that. I'd like to have gone on several of those great American trains, those great long distance American trains. I think they were magnificent. Whether it was a you know a, to travel from Kansas City to San Francisco on the Chief, you know, or the Super Chief, the Chief, the Super Chief was diesel, so on the Chief, and is another train travelling through the great wheat plains at one moment of the wild west and all those all those names that evoke the world of cowboys and cattle trains and indians and so on and then start guessing climbing great hills then into a desert then climbing mountains you know all within a train with a wonderful cocktail bar and you know and uh, and a train that would run in 1938 39 1940 wherever it could at 85 to 100 miles an hour with this magnificent steam engine at the front. I mean, I just don't think it gets better than that. I just love the hurl and gliding of these trains through the great landscapes. So that's where I'd like to go and see all those. But there are millions, I could say millions, I mean, certainly thousands of other places in the world where I'd love to see trains in action. I still would, yeah. Famously, you've been through India uh, on the footplate. Yeah. How was that? Well, that was one of the great 
lucky journeys, pure serendipity. I was uh, on a, a trip working with a charity at the time in um, Delhi, and uh, we wanted to go to Chandigarh in the Punjab. Quite a not that far. It's about 180 miles north of Delhi, but up in the blazing plains of the Punjab. And uh, the train that day couldn't run because they had a big. They had this massive power cut in Delhi, which wasn't unusual, but it was unusual that it hit the trains. You know, the lines were down, so there's no electricity, so there's no train. But um, you know, they sorted themselves out really well and brilliantly, and there just happened to be ready to work a special the next day on these beautiful WP semi-streamlined Pacifics, ready to work. And so it was hitched up. And uh, I thought, is this really going to work the train? And it sure was. And uh, and I just went up to talk to the driver because I liked doing that. And, uh, and this being India, of course, I, I, nearly always the friendliness is extraordinary. And he had five firemen he had recruited in the last 20 minutes from the yard. Wow. Five firemen. Because it was, it was going to be it's hot. Mm. And it was going to be very hot. And when we got off in that footplate, see why he needed five men. The, foot, the footplate in those engines big, by the way. It's like a, like a, a, more like an American locomotive, the scale of the cab compared to a British locomotive. Uh, like a very big Britannia Pacific um, in terms of space. Probably the same power, by the way, as a Britannia. And, um, um, and off it went. And uh, the heat struck. But um, we did really well. We rolled across those great plains of the Punjab at a steady 60 miles an hour, wherever possible. The line limit was 75 at the time, so 60 is pretty good. A big, heavy train. And um, the, the, the crew are constantly entertaining me, as well as watching out. They're very, very professional. But the driver, of course, pulls me in, sits me down to the seat again, and uh, gets me to enjoy the idea of driving the steam express to Chandigarh. And uh, what was sort of brilliant about it, apart from anything else, the heat, the dust, all that stuff, the smoke, was uh, we run away to, of course, one of the great and only purely modern movement cities in the world. Chandigarh is a garden city, an ideal city designed by the Swiss-French architect Le Cabusier, you know, the one who's accused, of course, of making us live in high-rise buildings in the cities. But it's absolutely stunning garden city with all this highly sculptural 19... 40s, 50s, 60s architecture, and in comes the express from Delhi, you know, by steam. Oh, what a perfect day! I, 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 it sounds it. I, I, to be honest, just about every experience you've described sounds like a perfect. Day. I think. It, I think it's just that thing you said. That bucket list, not quite a, a bucket list. It's just you know that thing about curiosity. You just want to do things. So, you know, I think you, you should try and get yourself in a position where. You can. Right. You know, and, and being a journalist has certainly been really helpful because that's taken me around the world. But when I've gone around the world, I've always thought I want to see particular buildings um, whilst I'm there and particular landscapes or animals or, or birds, whatever it is. But then also, if there's a railway nearby that's interesting and if it's got steam engines, I'll be there. You know, that's what I've always done. Brilliant. So you've done an awful lot already. Uh, is there one thing you'd like to make uh, a TV show about or or write a book? Come on, what's next? What have, what have you got uh, up your sleeve for us? There's a, a book I want to do. It requires lots of illustrations, which is why I haven't done it yet, because you need the publisher, you know, to invest in pictures. Every author understands this. Mm. Every reader probably understands it. Um, it's a book really brings a lot of those interests together, Sam, we've been talking about. I'd like to do a book called Design of Steam. And I would actually like to look at the... It's a, 
it's a tricky thing, but it works. The aesthetics of the steam locomotive from the beginning, from Trefithic, you know, and, and Stevenson onwards. But uh, of course, with the understanding that engineering dictates most of the way they look. But there's something beyond that. They do look, have looked different in different generations, decades across countries and around the world. And you do think, why didn't they all look the same? You know, right. why not look today? You heard me say, and a lot of people agree, and some of your listeners will disagree, that so many modern trains all look much the same, all the electric multiple units and so on. I know the differences, and that's for enthusiasts the joy of spotting all the differences. I get that. I like the idea that all these other these machines from an earlier age were very often very different. You know, why? You know, they're all doing much the same thing. But why do they have to look so different? And there's a lovely book, I think, explaining that aesthetic. So it's like an in a way it's like a mixture of art and engineering as a book, using the engineering knowledge and railway history to look at these beautiful machines and ask why they looked so different. There's almost a, a Darwinian feel about the way that uh, steam locomotives particularly yeah. evolved over those kind of first 50 to 100 years. Yeah, I like that notion of the Darwinian side of uh, railway locomotives. The early steam locomotive changed rapidly. You know, the first ones were, of course, primitive in any in any terms, because they were just starting, you know, and they were made of often lots of iron in them rather than steel, you know, so they were going to break and uh, they didn't have proper lubrication and all these things. And they move very quickly in terms of engineering development, because once the trains, passenger trains working and moving quite quickly, the desire comes fast, doesn't it? Hey, if we can get to Liverpool to Manchester in a couple of hours. Why can't we go from Liverpool to London? Why can't we go from London to Edinburgh? Why can't we go from Penzance to um, Birmingham? I mean, it's uh, off they went and you need faster, faster, more powerful, more reliable locomotives to do that. And so the advance is quick. And the the, the response is different. You know, in the Great Northern Railway, um, in the railway races to the north in 1888 and 1895, um, the fastest trains from King's Cross left with these Sterling singles, you know, which had eight foot high driving wheels. Eight foot! I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing to build. Lovely to look at and to listen to. Um, but, uh, you know, why do that when you didn't really need to do that? You know, much, you know, smaller wheels and go just as fast. Well, tell Patrick Sterling that, who designed it. You know, it'd be interesting to talk to him, wanted to interview him. Why? You know, that's what I'd like to know all those things. Why? Jonathan, I could listen to you talk about your experiences all day, but we Thanks, we have to now run through our quick fire section uh, because I I have a feeling that someone somewhere is keeping a scoreboard of some description, and and if I don't do it, then uh, I don't know, I'd, I'll be in trouble, I imagine. So here we go, ready? Quick fire section. Do you have a favourite train, and what is it? Favourite locomotive, Princess Coronation, London Midland Scottish Railway. Beautiful. I think we know the answer to this already. Uh, steam, diesel, or modern trains? Have to hurry me there, Steve. <laughs> uh, is there one train that you wished you'd uh, got to see live? I said it, and I? The 20th Century Limited, the 1938 version from New York to Chicago. And uh, is there a favourite place that you travel by train? Yeah, it's George Tonisner on the Garden Route in South Africa. Most beautiful railway line in the world. 
And now a, a slightly longer quickfire question, but what do you think the the future of, of rail travel holds? I think railways are still very much the future. The more we talk about the environment and concerns for sustainability and fuel sources and so on, railways are one of the most, if not the most efficient way of moving people. Um, they will be with us for a very long time indeed. Jonathan, you're fantastic to listen to, and thank you very much for coming on the show today. Uh, where can we find out more about your work? That's interesting. Um, probably just by looking up amazon.co.uk, Jonathan Glancy Books. I don't do social <laughs> media, unlike many journalists. I just have never fallen in love with it and uh, just like to work. There's no law. No, you don't have to do that. It's fine. Uh, and your latest book, Logomotive, is out now? It's certainly out now. Logomotive, yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on again. And uh, and I wish you all the best with your next endeavours. Sam, thank you very much indeed. It's fun. And thanks to you for listening. If you're enjoying this series, please let us know via wearerailfans.com or use the We Are Rail Fans Facebook page. We'll be back with another episode as soon as the signal changes. This has been a Listen production. Thanks for travelling with us today, and if you wouldn't mind, please ensure you have all your belongings with you before you leave the show. And we'll catch you next time.